Hello. I'm Jack Buckley from UCLA Medical Center, and today I'm going to be interviewing Luann Carabini on behalf of the Education Committee for the Society of Neuroscience and Anesthesiology and Critical Care for the next edition of Experts Audio Corner. Dr. Carabini completed her anesthesiology residency training at Northwestern University and then completed a fellowship in critical care medicine. She is certified in neurocritical care and is currently the director of the Neurospine Intensive Care Unit at Northwestern Memorial Hospital. In addition, she is also the program director for the residency program. She divides her clinical time between the neurosurgical ICU and providing anesthesia care for the neurosurgical uh, cases. She has developed a research interest in studying high-risk spine surgery with a specific interest in perioperative management of anemia, coagulopathy, and also the uh, preoperative risk assessment for complex spine fusions. Dr. Carabini, what do you consider the major challenges in complex spine surgery? Thank you for the invitation to speak with you today. Uh, I think there's a couple components that make complex spine surgery so challenging. Uh, first and foremost is there seems to be a, a bit of an alphabet soup to spine surgery when they're scheduled. Uh, sometimes it's hard for somebody who doesn't do spine surgery every day to know the difference between what might be a very complex operation and um, a very small, minimally evasive operation. So I think understanding what your surgeon's doing and having an open lines of communication is one of the first challenges or hurdles to overcome in taking good care of these complex spine surgery patients. Uh, understanding which um, procedures are more invasive and uh, involve more risk of blood loss um, in surgical durations is, is probably one of the, the biggest challenges to overcome first. I also think some of the challenges from a spine surgery is the positioning. Most of the time, these patients are prone, and prone positioning in and of itself can increase the, um, the risk of patients, particularly it decreases the compliance of the right ventricle, decreases pulmonary compliance, and both of these things can make overall cardiopulmonary management and hemodynamic monitoring a challenge. And then lastly, I think the kind of the elephant in the conversation is the, the management of, of acute blood loss, how fast these patients can bleed, how much they can bleed, and how to anticipate which patients are going to have the most amount of blood loss, um, how to prepare for that and how to manage it in the moment. I think those would be my three top concerns uh, for taking care of high-risk spine patients. And one of the challenges I found is assessing the volume status in these patients. How do you prefer to do this? Absolutely. Volume management can be a real challenge for prone spine patients in particular because with the decrease in compliance to the right ventricle, you can't use a static measure of preload, uh, such as CVP, because it's just not a reliable estimate of your left ventricular end diastolic pressure or your overall volume status or responsiveness. I like to use a goal-directed fluid management protocol. I know there's some recent um, question in the literature about the effectiveness of goal-directed fluid therapies, but I still think it, it makes the most sense to me as far as providing a dynamic measure of fluid responsiveness in a patient who's prone. Um, there's a couple options for this. One would be an esophageal Doppler probe, but again, these patients are prone, and uh, they're prone for long periods of time, and I think having any additional monitor um, in the mouth can cause maybe a risk for tongue ischemia, so I tend not to use an esophageal Doppler probe. I prefer the pulse pressure variation as a, the best index for volume responsiveness in my patients. Um, there's actually some supportive evidence for this in prone patients undergoing spine surgery. 
And I use a value of uh, less than 12 to 15% of pulse pressure variation to indicate that my patients would benefit from a volume challenge or volume bolus. Earlier you mentioned that there's a wide variety of surgical procedures. Which do you consider to be of higher risk? I think that the surgeries can be varied risk, and um, there's a couple of components to consider. Uh, The first one is the number of levels planned for instrumentation. And this can range from, you know, one level of instrumentation all the way up to a a complete uh, cervical thoracolumbar fusion. I think the cervical region is a lot less risky when you're talking about blood loss and hemodynamic uh, variations. I consider the thoracolumbar fusions, particularly those that involve the iliosacral joints and those that involve planned osteotomies. Um, There's different levels of invasiveness for osteotomies. So there's Smith-Peterson osteotomies, which really one at a time doesn't involve a whole lot of invasiveness or risk to the patient from a blood loss perspective. But if the surgeon stacks several Smith-Peterson osteotomies on top of each other, it's not uncommon to see a surgical plan for four Smith-Peterson osteotomies from L1 all the way down to L5. And that can get a lot more invasive and be associated with more blood loss. But in addition to Smith-Peterson osteotomies, there's also um, the pedicle subtraction osteotomies, and those can be fairly significant when it comes to acute blood loss over a short period of time. It's not uh, unrealistic to think that these patients would lose a liter in the course of an hour, and it's really important to be prepared for that, to know it's going to happen when it's going to happen and um, kind of manage those patients proactively. Lastly, there's a final type of osteotomy I consider probably the highest risk, and that's a vertebral column resection. Most of these involve um, complete en blanc removal of vertebral column sections, and for those, you have to make sure your patient is uh, immobile and yet still facilitate um, the monitoring of motor evoked potentials, sensory evoked potentials, and you have to support the patient hemodynamically through what can be a a pretty significant period of of blood loss and fluid shifts. Lastly, I think the comorbidities of the patient. A lot of these patients who um, go for spinal deformity correction, especially for kyphoscoliosis, can be uh, in the older population, over 65, and can have a pretty significant frailty index. And uh, you have to consider whether they're going to tolerate prone positioning and how much they're going to tolerate from a blood loss and a fluid shift perspective. Can you describe what you mean by active management of blood loss and coagulopathy? Absolutely. I think a lot of times in anesthesia, we tend to be very reactionary and we'll wait for blood loss to happen. We'll follow that with a lab result and treat the lab results. In spine, it can be Uh, challenging to both keep up with the blood loss and the fluid requirements and near impossible to keep up and catch up at the same time. So what I call active management, it really treats the patient proactively where you anticipate the points in surgery when the patient's going to have precipitous blood loss, perhaps uh, during an osteotomy process, and you um, treat the patient with the blood loss. So instead of waiting until your lab result shows acute anemia, you would have been proactively transfusing the patient and maintaining a much more stable uh, hemoglobin concentration. Similarly with coagulopathy, active management would prepare you for those times when the patient does have a low fibrinogen count or um, 
delusional coagulopathy instead of waiting for the patient to be coagulopathic and therefore be actively bleeding while you're waiting for your products, uh, we're much more prepared because we've watched the blood values drop. We can have blood products available in the room and be able to transfuse them right away. What is your protocol for monitoring laboratory tests for these complex spine surgeries? So we start with baseline labs right after in uh, intubation and induction, sometimes even before we flip the patient prone. And all of our lab tests include uh, a standard um, where we send hemoglobin, somatocrits, a platelet count. We also send a fibrinogen concentration, basic coagulation panel, including a PT, PTT, and the INR. And then we send an arterial blood gas with metabolic panel that includes the lactic acid, ionized calcium, glucose, sodium, and potassium. We send these at baseline and then every two hours until either six hours has passed or we start requiring a transfusion therapy. At that point, we actually monitor the labs every hour. And what this allows us to do is um, we can see if the fibrinogen is falling, we'll order a, a product cryoprecipitate, and by the time um, we reach our transfusion cutoffs, we already have the product available and in the room. Can you describe your treatment cutoffs for the various types of coagulopathies? Of course. We have uh, a couple of treatment cutoffs and then one specific omission, which I'll, I'll talk about. We order platelets when the platelet count is at 150,000, and then we transfuse to maintain a baseline no less than 100,000 platelet count. For fibrinogen, we order cryoprecipitate as a dose when the fibrinogen falls below 200 milligrams per deciliter, and we transfuse at a value of about 150 milligrams per deciliter. I think you'll notice that I don't have a transfusion protocol for hemoglobin. We don't have a specific um, transfusion threshold because I think this is something that needs to be dynamic, not only specific to the patient, but also specific to the point in surgery. So I can say that we, we don't or we rarely fall allow the hemoglobin to fall below 8.0, and that's in accordance with the recent guidelines from the AABB, which suggests a um, perioperative hemoglobin of 8.0 grams per liter in major orthopedic surgery. But I also think this is, at times, not an appropriate transfusion trigger, because if you have a, have a hemoglobin of 8.0 and you're about to undergo a major osteotomy, you're definitely going to fall below that hemoglobin. So my transfusion trigger varies depending on where I am in the surgery. If I'm at the beginning of surgery, just undergoing exposure and maybe, maybe initial instrumentation, I'll allow my hemoglobin to range between 8 and 9 uh, grams per deciliter. But if I'm about to undergo an osteotomy, I tend to raise the transfusion trigger between 9 and 10. And then after the osteotomy, I, I use a lot of cell salvage and I'm going to get that cell salvage returned. So while I'm processing the blood in the, in the cell saver, I tend to let my transfusion practice be, practice be restrictive because I don't want to transfuse the patient to a hemoglobin of 8.5 and then return them several hundred mLs of cell saver, and the patient ends up being um, dropped off after in the PACU with a hemoglobin over 12. So this is a, a trigger that really needs to be dynamic with where you are in the point of surgery and whether you anticipate either blood loss or the return of self-salvaged blood. When, if ever, would you administer Factor Seven? This, this is a great question. This is something that's changed for us at Northwestern. Uh, Northwestern High Respine Protocol was started in, in 2006. And back then, 
recombinant activated factor 7 was a pretty popular choice for dilutional coagulopathy and um, definitely for extremes in, in um, critical blood loss. At that time, we were administering factor 7 in patients who had uh, fibrinogens over 150,000 I'm sorry, over 150 milligrams per deciliter, and platelets over 100,000. At that point, if they were still oozing from the surgical site, if they had an INR greater than 1.8, they would be a candidate for activated factor 7. Um, I can tell you in my practice, I've never administered it to a, to a spine patient. It was given when I reviewed the literature for several hundred patients we treated with the high-risk spine protocol at Northwestern. It was given 13 times out of about 300 cases. Now that we've changed a lot of our pharmacologic um, adjuvants and our treatment for patients with a risk of major blood loss, I have actually removed it from our high-risk spine protocol. We treat our patients with tranexamic acid unless they have a, a relative or absolute contraindication to it. And I think that the combination of patients treated with tranexamic acid and activated factor 7 really hasn't been studied enough to ensure the safety of the combination of that. I also think that for our patients, if they have a normal fibrinogen and a uh, normal platelet count, if they're still oozing and showing signs of dilutional coagulopathy, I'm going to administer plasma at that time. So our protocol now includes a an, an plasma indication for an INR greater than 1.8. And you mentioned transamic acid. Do you use that for all of your patients? I would like to use it for all of my patients. I don't. I'm fairly conservative in my use of tranexamic acid. I think it's very exciting um, to be able to provide a, um, a safe antifibrinolytic medication to um, as a component of our, of our blood conservation strategy. But I also have some concerns about the safety in an older patient population with significant risk for venous and arterial thromboembolic disease. So at Northwestern, we included a, a kind of a two-tier protocol. I think there's good evidence that tranexamic acid is certainly blood sparing in the orthopedic patient population and in the spine patient population, but I don't think we've really narrowed down the right dose and the right patients. A lot of data for spine was done in adolescent patients, and adolescent scolio correction patients are just, they're just different than patients undergoing deformity correction for kyphoscoliosis who are over 65. So what we use is a, a two-tiered approach. Healthy patients who are under 65 get uh, a bolus of 30 milligrams per kilo, and then they are on an infusion of 3 milligrams per kilo per hour through the course of surgery. Any patients that we have who are over 65 years old, or if they have a history of uh, DVT or PE greater than two years from the time of surgery, or if they have mild coronary artery disease, then they get a lower dose, which is 10 milligrams per kilo and uh, infusion of one milligram per kilo per hour until surgery closure. Well, Dr. Kirby, thank you for taking the time to speak to us. And I feel like the members of SNAC will be, uh, find this to be a very informative talk. Wonderful. Thank you very much for the invitation.